0: Getting rooted, rooted down into our past, rooted down into our story, and rooted down into the truth of who we are. That's what allows us to know who we are, own our story, and walk purposefully into our futures. This is Get Rooted with Robin Moreno. For 25 years, journalist Maria Inajosa has helped tell America's untold stories, via her work with NPR, CNN, and on the long-running show, Latino USA. In 2010, Inajosa launched her own media company, the Futuro Media Group, which produces multi-platform, community-based journalism that gives critical voice to the voiceless. The Emmy award-winning journalist has a new memoir out called Once I Was You, in which she shares her own story of moving to the US from Mexico as a child, and rising through the ranks of media as a young and tenacious Latina reporter. In our conversation, Maria talks about finding inspiration from her parents, how she's moved beyond imposter syndrome to create her own media empire, and why we as Latinxes must stand up and own all of our power. It's a beautiful conversation, and it begins right now. Now you have this amazing book, a memoir. Uh, It's your second memoir, right? Once, Once I Was You?, why did you decide to do this memoir? Like why, why now um, and why?
1: Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, writing books is not my favorite thing. <laughs> Maybe you might know that because once I, I mean, because Raising Raul was published in 1999. <laughs> so that's like basically 20 years of not writing a, a book. I was very scared. It takes a lot to write a book. Um, and so it, it's one of those things I was afraid of. So <clears throat> one of the things that happened four years ago, Robin, maybe you remember, is that I was on MSNBC. I'm not a paid contributor, but I was on the show, prime time, And uh, Steve Cortez, who is a Donald Trump surrogate, said something like those illegals referring to undocumented immigrants. And I kind of had a moment on television where I was like, you know what? There's no such thing as an illegal human being. Don't call people illegals. Uh, illegal is not a noun. <clears throat> and that went viral. Um, it, it, Fusion actually took it and just, and, and it went viral. And that was when I thought, well, you know what? I can write a small pocketbook. You know, like the kind that you used to see when we were at airports, like when you'd be buying your magazines and your candy and, you know, in your newspapers, and there'd be like a little pocketbook like Chimamanda, D.G.A., We Are All Feminists. I was like, I could write that book, Illegal Is Not a noun, And that's how it started, because I was like, I'll I'll write a little book. (laughs) I'll write a small book. Well, then, you know, I had to find a new agent. Mine had retired. We had to, you know, actually write proposals. And no publisher was interested in that small book. And what they said was, we want a bigger book. We want a bigger book about you and and not only your story, but giving us context about journalism, feminism, American history, immigration policy. And by that time, I was in deep, you know? And so it wasn't like I could be like, no, I don't want to write that book. So that's what happened. Uh, I started in 2018. And to be honest with you, Robin, I really thought that by the time my book was going to come out in 2020, I was like, híjoles, a nadie le va importar. Everything's already said that needs to be said. There's nothing that I can add. You know, because this we're really expert at taking ourselves down. Um, and so it's been really beautiful to feel like people are saying, wow, this is just the book that I needed. And actually right now, post-presidential election, it's kind of like, oh, my God, I needed this even more. Because in the end, it is, it is uplifting, right? I am a survivor of... Of multiple sorts, and so there is an uplifting in the end, and I'm really glad I ended up writing this very big book and not a very small book. I'm really, really happy.
0: Well, we're we're really happy too because you've had a big life and such a treasure trove of experience. Um, but you know, one so we're sitting here post election, right? So just relieved um, and thrilled and traumatized. You know, like uh, we're uh, we have a variety of emotions. But one thing. There's so many amazing things in your book, but there's this one scene when you you know you were born in Mexico when you're you come to United States um, because your dad um, was a scientist, a doctor. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And so there's a scene where you're actually coming. So you're like going through customs and you're like dressed up and your mom's with you and y'all actually get stopped. And I think they think maybe you have a rash or they think you have something like chicken pox or something. Um, And they want to quarantine you or take you away, right? Right. Which is so reminiscent and foreshadowing of separations. But your mom says no. And she's, and you can tell me if I'm saying this wrong, but she's small, right? She's like, you know, this small woman and he was a tall You know, guy, and I just had this visual of that, but she's like, no, like he's, you're, no, you're not taking my kids, my husband, we're, we're, you know, fighting for you. Correct. And and her, and it really, I mean, it just evokes so much, but what can we channel now, right? You know, from your mom Mm -hmm. and from you in that moment when someone is going to tell us as Latinas, as people of color, um, incorrectly, right? No, you can't do this. Or no, you can't be here. Like, What can we channel from that moment? What have you channeled all those years and would love to continue to do? Yeah. So
1: it's important to remember that the separating, the taking, I don't even like to use the word separating, the the, the ripping from their arms of children, from their parents, has been going on in this country since the day that the pilgrims arrived. They took Indigenous children and said that they needed to be, um, you know, their faith needed to be changed, right? Protestant. Um, they took enslaved children from African American mothers and fathers. Um, they've been taking immigrant children. Uh, during the so-called japanese internment which is not japanese it's american citizens and it wasn't internment it was imprisonment children were being taken then so this is a policy this is not new yes under donald trump the the quotient of like torture and punishment and horror was increased so, yeah, in that moment in the airport when we arrive in 1962 with green cards, um, mom, my mamá, basically loses it in the airport because it, nobody had ever said, we're going to take your child. And what was crazy, Robin, is that, you know, when I found out that story, the way I made sense of it myself as a grown woman, I was like, wow, that's really weird that that immigration agent was going to take me from my mother at the Dallas airport. Where was he going to put me? I mean, what a weird guy that he would do that. Like, what? Well, bueno. kind of like the horror of the writing of this book is that it wasn't a fluke. There was a place in the Dallas airport where they would have put me. They did take children. And specifically, the policy under which I would have been taken from my mother had she not lost it, and really moved into her privilege, and used that little—I mean, that huge voice of hers in her tiny body—it would have been me. It was a policy that basically said Mexicans are dirty. You know the slur. Mm-hmm. Reverse those two words, and that's the slur. So. The policy was Mexicans are dirty, their bodies need to be searched because they are bringing disease. And so that's what that immigration agent was doing. He was looking over my tiny baby body to see if I was clean enough to be allowed into the United States. He sees my little rash. He says, I have the German measles. And that's when he says, we're going to put her into quarantine, Um, a word that we now understand so well. So um, it was... um, In that moment, Robin, when my mother called me up, I was in an airport in the year 2018. We had heard the voices, the cries of the children of the toddlers screaming for their parents. Uh, That story broken by ProPublica. And my mother in her 80s called me up and said, oh my God, mijita, es que yo iba a ser ellas. I was going to be one of those mothers. And I was like, what are you talking about, mom? She said, they would have taken you. They would have taken you, mijita. and that's when she said, "That screaming of that that voice that that you were." She said, "That that was not like me being a badass." She said, "That was my trauma." Mm. She said, "That was my trauma. It was all I could do was to start screaming." Um, so, <clears throat> Robin, I realized at that moment, like, "Oh, now I know why I've by this story has been central to my life as a journalist." now i know what trauma looks like how it is embedded in our bodies and we don't even know um and i'm so glad that i have the privilege to have been able to become a journalist and respond to my trauma by telling these stories and shining light on them
0: you know you um i in the book you say there was there's a page where somebody you know is comes up to you and maybe you're at NPR and they're like you know you know, Maria, you have that like Latina agenda. You know, you have that Latina agenda. You know, and you're like, what are you talking about? You have like white man agenda, but you. But and then in the book, you pause and say, you know, if I had an agenda, right? If I what's okay, If I truly had my agenda, maybe it's to make people feel right. Like you know, maybe it's to make people like wake up or connect or resonate, um, activate. And that, you know, for this, you know, for these things to happen, right? Like these, the continued separation of children um, and racial injustice, there, there is a point where people are not connected. They're not awake. They're not connected to the story. There's a disconnection, right? Like, because otherwise you would, we would all be in the streets. And so how how do you do your? I mean, I, I feel like that's the central purpose of your work. But um, what do you do when people don't pay attention?
1: <clears throat> well, I'll tell you something, Robin. Uh, I have been covering this story for over twenty five years. They're paying attention. They are. It's <laughs> it breaks my heart to know that it had to get to this point for people to pay attention that we had to hear those babies and children screaming for people to pay attention. As you know, because you've been following my work for a long time, I've been telling these stories for decades. And so the fact that, (laughs) that I was kind of screaming and saying, Hey, well, Hey, but look, did you know what the uh, detention facilities were called in the 1980s? They were called el corralon, the corral, because our bodies were put out like cows under the hot sun. In the 1980s, that's what the detention facilities looked like. Fast forward to now, those detention facilities have perfected torture so that you're not out in the hot sun. In fact, the second you are um, intercepted, you are put into a place that our people call uh, la hielera, the icebox, the refrigerator, the opposite of being in the corral. And when you are put into a freezing room um, and given one of those aluminum so-called blankets, um, you're being told that this is for your own good. And there is no mark of torture on your body when they are waking you up every hour Depriving you of sleep, threatening that they will take your children away from you um, that 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 is that is real that is what is happening in the United States of America today so <clears throat> it is on the backs of immigrants and and I always always um, there is the first sin was slavery. Um, but the original sin was genocide, so anti indigenous hatred anti black hatred anti immigrant hatred anti latino hatred anti asian hatred it all builds on top of the other, and so what we have to do is create dialogue and and awareness um, and sharing of these stories. I guess what what's hard and why you hear me hesitating is because today in particular I've been listening to the voices of people who are Donald Trump supporters and just how they're seeing what's happening it's like they're living in another world and this is where I get just like how do you how are you able to say but these are the facts these things are not um they're not negotiable they're actually facts that, I think, is what has me so worried because while people are listening now, the challenge that we have now is to deconstruct a narrative that has been created about us, which is not true, and now we've got to you know, convince people that this is actually happening. So um, I call it the U.S. Mambo, three steps forward, 670 steps back. It's very hard to dance that mumble, so let's just hope that now um, we are able to move forward in progress, as opposed to what's been happening in the last four years, which has actually been retrocediendo, going backwards. So I'm hopeful that with people's attention, that we can make progress and not go back. And by the way, just to finish, you know, people ask me, well, what should what should the United States do about the immigration problem? We don't have an immigration problem. There is net zero migration. It, we have an international human rights crisis that is going on in this country on the backs of people whose only difference is that we were not born in this country. And because of that, we are, our, our uteruses are taken away, our children are taken away, our dignity. No, no. No, 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 no. So we, we have a human rights crisis. And the sooner that the incoming administration acknowledges that, recognizes it, names it, apologizes, and then does everything, everything to reunite families and to s- restart the process of refugee and asylum uh, in this country, uh, we, we, won't, we won't heal.
0: You know, you tell this story. I mean, you're a journalist, right? So your your job is to tell all of these untold stories, the stories that are not being told, right? Bridge the gap, you know, and connect. That's your agenda. But how how is it for you to tell your own story? Because that's a different lens, right? Like you're constantly like you're you're great, like at what I'm doing, right? Like I'm a you know I'm going to talk about you, and let me talk about you, and let me go and undercover. But you know, what is it like to turn that lens on yourself and have to process, um, have to self-reflect and have to share, have to share. Because I know, you know, that's tough to tell the truth that when you want to sort of be compelling and you want to connect, you've got to tell the truth. And that could not have been easy in this story because that's why it's so good, because you do that. So can we talk about that? How hard was that for you?
1: you well, you know, <clears throat> I kind of loved being in a space where I was just doing one thing. So, um, you know, Robin, I, I'm Mexican, so I have 16 different jobs, right? So I'm always working. So when finally we had written the outline and I really needed to just sit down and write, that was in March of 2019. Um, it was actually really uh, liberating in many ways because I, I wanted to tell this story In that sense, I really didn't have an agenda, right? I I didn't have an agenda. I was like, okay, I'm just going to be super honest. By the way, I wrote an extra 100,000 words, so you can imagine. I just was like writing and writing and writing and writing. My great editor, Michelle Herrera-Mulligan, cleaned that all up. I felt like there was there were moments when I was really coming into contact with my father, may he rest in peace, Dr. Rauli Nojosa. I felt like there were moments when I was really coming into contact with my own self. The, the hardest thing to write, the one when I was crying through it, was my rape. Um, and I wasn't even planning on writing about that had it not been for uh, the Kavanaugh nominations and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. I don't know that I would have... Um, so I actually was really thankful to be able to write these stories. I've, and maybe that's why I needed to wait all of these years to write. By the time I was sitting down to write, once I was you, I, I was ready. I, I really was ready. Um, and so it wasn't as painful. I think even as writing Raising Raul, when I was a, a younger writer, uh, this felt cathartic and it felt like I needed to do it. And I was clear about sharing of, you said, just like super, like kind of ripping myself open and just saying, here it is. Why? Because, pues ya no tengo pena, no tengo pelos en la lengua. You know, I mean, everything that I was afraid that could happen in my life already happened. Yeah. O sea, when you, you know, when your best friend, may she rest in peace, Cecilia Weissman, when your best friend you're holding her hand when she takes her last breath <laughs> it's like what you know what more terrible things you know surviving 911 etc so i'm i'm okay i it's not that i don't have fear so when people say you're fearless about no it's just that i'm i'm okay with being public about this because i feel like it's a it's a way of me continuing to be of service
0: That's that's beautiful, and I want to talk about that because I mean, is it like an age thing? Because there's a freedom, right? Because you know, in the book, you you talk about so many parts of your life, right? So when you were like a kid, and you were in high school, and you were an actress, and you moved to New York, and you were a waitress, and and it's so you could I identified so deeply as having moved to New York and been a journalist, and so hungry and being the first Latina in so many rooms, but with the overwhelming sense of like imposter syndrome, you know, because you're the only one ever, and it's so hard. to walk that road when you just you're just there's not you know it's been laid for you from seven seven generations past right that's why you're there but in many times you don't have all the you know you don't see all the people that look like you but it seems it seems as if the moment and I could be wrong that you feel like you have this freedom that you're like to hell with it you know and is is it is it just because is it because of age I mean is there a moment I guess like you said holding your friend that's dying or that you're just like you know what the the pain of holding this or whatever is much smaller, right? Yeah. Or than than just doing telling the truth to help someone.
1: Yeah. So, Cecilia, when the breast cancer had spread to her brain, um, you know, she just—I remember her just saying, "Please find joy." She was racked with anxiety. She was another Latina racked with anxiety, um, and I just remember thinking, "Joy. Okay, we've got to find joy." I don't have any tattoos but if i was ever to get one it would have to symbolize that 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 notion that we have to live enjoy every life every moment that we can and i think latinas actually we do that women of color we try to center that it is part of our resistance um but finding that that joy um it takes a lot it it takes a lot out of us uh so for me it is saying to others, yeah, try not to have the pelos in la lengua. And I think about this a lot, Robin, because I'm like, you know, is it because I'm getting older? Well, yes. But I actually hope that younger women get this sensation and realize that our insecurities, our imposter syndrome, the guilt, it, it doesn't really help us at all. I mean, it's necessary. I'm not saying that, you know, you're going to be, because that would be like you're such a, got such a huge ego that, you're, you know, nothing can stop you. No, we recognize our ego and our insecurity and our humility. But I, one thing I tell my students, because, you know, I'm a professor as well, is that there isn't, <laughs> I know that they're, as students are just like, but when does it, when does it settle? And I'm like, well, you know, as a, as a woman, as a woman of color, as a conscious woman, settle? I don't know if it ever just settles. We're, we're, our life is always kind of pushing us forward in these ways. And I would hope that that is not so much that your life settles, but that you do realize, Oyeme, you are a survivor, right? I think all of us feel like this right now. Um, I think this is a great message of those of us who have survived the last four years, because many did not, many did not, whether it was COVID or their taking of their own lives or the depression, many did not survive. But for those of us who did, we need to recognize that power that we had to survive this. And I am speaking very specifically now to Latinas, I am because Donald Trump began his campaign attacking us. And so we had to be the ones to save our lives. We had to be the ones speaking up for ourselves. We had to be the ones defending ourselves. We had to be the ones who were organizing, who were communicating, creating our solutions, finding our sisters. And the attack was clear. So I would like to take this moment to say Let's, let's recognize the survivors in us right now and, and take this power and build on it. Um, and I hope you don't wait this many decades in your lives to own that power. I always say, like to my students, I'm like, look, as young Latinas, you need to be, and you know this well, Robin, you are the most powerful consumers in this country, you are the shit, you like, you got it going on, especially now since these are, so yeah, I want you walking in the room with your shoulders back and the snapping coming, like that's yes, the way you're walking in the room, but you're also deeply connected to your humility. You're, you're deeply connected to that so that you understand that when you have to connect with another human being, that you can do that too. And I think we have that capacity. And I think in many ways, we've learned to model that in this country by watching Black women who have survived the worst kind of horrors and yet you know, survive and thrive and model for us. So- um <laughs> that's how i want us to walk in the room shoulders back owning it and at the same time like you know i guess in in your head but don't be an asshole about it <laughs> or if you're going to be have that reaction to the right person i'll tell you on on saturday after the um election was called and i'm not you know i'm trying to get an interview with joe biden and kamala harris and i will ask them very tough questions so it wasn't like i'm like Whoa. Joe Biden, you know, that's not how I operate. But I was screaming while my daughter was driving in Connecticut, um, happiness about democracy. And a guy in a pickup truck, saw uh, he saw me and he gave me the finger and he yelled at me and he said, fuck you. <laughs> And I I just responded back, I love you, and I love you. I don't know where that came from, but that was my response. It's a lot to ask, I know, because there is a lot of anger, but he
0: didn't have a comeback to that. <laughs> that is beautiful and probably beyond most of us, but it, you know you have a deep spirituality and so i know you talked about in raising role and you talked about it a little bit um or maybe a lot in once i was you and you talk about you know praying to yamaya and putting your hands in water um can you talk about that because it's you know the podcast is called getting rooted right and we talk about you know We'll talk about, you know, your ancestors, but also it's rooted down into the truth of who you are. And I think spirituality really does ground us. And so what are your spiritual practices? What what grounds you? What allows you to respond when someone says, fuck you, with an, I love you? (laughs) Um, So I was raised
1: Catholic, but my dad was a scientist, so he never went to church. So I was a little bit like, "Mm." hmm. I had to come to terms with um, the contradictions in the Catholic Church as a Mexican woman. So while I felt deeply spiritual and you know saw my grandmother praying all the time, um, you know, my God was not represented by the Pope as for example for my abuelita may she rest in peace but i was fascinated by the virgin of guadalupe who was brown skinned and the story of the virgin of guadalupe so in my spiritual quest the truth is is that you know i'm looking over here because columbia university barnard college is right up the road there and that's where i actually had a moment where i was like i'm no longer catholic and i was terrified i you know i, I was reading all this philosophy and history and i just i had to have a moment where i was like i can't so I, can't, I can't live in this contradiction and the hypocrisy because, you know, my family was preaching love, Catholic love, but then being racist and homophobic and anti-black and anti-indigenous. And so when I had that moment, um, I went to the little chapel on the campus and I was like, okay, muchas gracias, Jesucristo, pero I, I see you as a historical character. Chao. Catholicism and I walked out and I was like, Oh my God, you know, something's going to strike down again. Oh my God. Am I okay? Oh my God. I made it through one day. Nothing happened. You know, Oh my God, I'm going to be okay. You know? And then I was, I was kind of like, all right, so what do I do with this now? this ancestral feeling like, you know, now I had, you know, an awareness of indigenous cosmology. I was really thinking about this. I was in New York being exposed to Santeria and the Yoruba tradition, which touched me very closely. And so basically long and short is I don't have one spiritual practice. I'm not a member of any organized religion. I meditate every day. Religiously, (laughs) the pun intended. Um, Right now, my meditation looks like just music, actually. Before I was doing uh, guided meditations, now I'm doing a lot of mantras and music. And that I'll stay in that meditative state for the first hour that I'm up. You know, first just calm, and then even while I'm making my coffee, doing the whole thing, I've got the meditative state going on. Um, and even though I'm not initiated into the Yoruba religion, I identify deeply with its ancestral worship and, <clears throat> and being rooted in nature um, and the orishas, um, but also very deeply tied to my indigenous expression of uh, spirituality and my Mexican indigenous roots. And so, you know, I have an altar You've seen it on my Instagram, I, I, I put it out there. Some people are like, I'll never show my altar. And I'm like, no, I actually want people to see my altar because I want them to know that they can do this too. I mean, I, I don't have like a degree in altars. So, you, know, you can make one. Um, and I focus a lot on gratitude. That is, you know, something that it takes a long time, by the way. I remember when Sandy, who's in the book, my African-American godmother, sister, best friend, would say, you know, focus on gratitude. And I'd be like, yo, I say thank you all the time. Like, come on now. Like, I got stuff to do. I'm busy. I got, you know, like, eh." it takes us a minute to really understand the gratitude like and kind of moving that. And believe me, I really was not that person who was like, yes, gratitude, meditation. So it takes a while. And I really do hope that this does not take decades for other women and people to get to. Um, We, we in fact, can help heal ourselves. And the meditation and the grounding and the nature, I work out every day, Robin, um, in the park. That's why I'm looking out that way because I can see the park, Morningside Park right here. And um, I may be with my boxing gloves, I may be with my boxing gloves on, but the sky is above me. You know, massive trees are grounding me. You know, the leaves are everywhere. And I'm just like, we can make it through this. You know, we've been around for centuries. Women have been around for centuries. We've done this for millions of years. We're going to make it. And that's that's kind of like how i ground myself spiritually.
0: that's beautiful and i feel like it encompasses all of of the things um, i was studying aztec cosmology and there was this idea that um, i read they had like four paths to rootedness because um, the idea like the the world view is that the world was slippery slick right so in the Nahua world they have word they had this idea and their antidote was in, uh, was this path to rootedness and they did it through embodiment Emotional balance, community, and nature. Um, and that's literally what you just said, you know. And I think those are the, the most natural things, right? It's like moving your body. I love seeing you um, on Instagram with your boxing gloves. And I've seen you in person. And can we just see your guns because your your arms are like nobody else's like what is up with that girl like I, I love the physicality of it because it's like you embody strength like you are like you're little but you're strong and you're mighty and you're like physically mighty
1: like I did that on purpose ramen <clears throat> i did it on purpose because in 2015 when everybody was dying around me my father my cousin maritere cecilia so many people and I was feeling really weak I was feeling really beaten down. And I had never boxed. Raquel Cepeda, the writer, you know, who writes a lot about um uh, actually being a, a survivor of of physical violence in her home. And she was a boxer, and I'd be like, Oh yeah, me, Raquel, you know, such violence, you know. It, actually, it was something that once I put on the gloves, I was like, Oh my God, this really helps. Um, this really helps to to punch it out. So um, I I actually was like, you know what? I'm never gonna get into a street fight. I hope, but I need to feel like like if I had to, <clears throat> I could try and kick your ass. <laughs> it was something that because I have been working out for years, you know, and I just did different things, and there was this feeling of just like. You need to feel strong. And, um, and so now it's become like a drug. Uh, by the way, <laughs> I've never seen a boxing match. I mean, the last boxing match that I saw was Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. That was like 1970. So I don't even know when it was like, I have not, I don't watch boxing. I don't like to see people get hit. I don't like, I don't like to see blood and like, you know, like, I don't like that. But today, as a matter of fact, I was boxing at seven o'clock. My trainer was pushing me. There was some video posted on my Instagram. And you know what I'm doing? I'm looking at it. I'm like, damn, your form sucks. (laughs) I'm just like, fix your form. What is the matter? And then I realized like, wow, boxers are never really satisfied with our form. And I never thought of form in boxing. So that's at the level where I'm at right now, where it's just like, can you perfect your form? Can you, can you make it better? Can you be stronger? Um, and I'm so thankful that I found this group led by a crazy African from Senegal, who we dance and box at seven o'clock in the morning. That's what we do, put on you know disco or whatever you want. And that's how we start our days and it does make me feel power, powerful. So I do recommend it. Then again, you know, people are like, I just want to do yoga. Hey, I do a little bit of yoga too.
0: No, but I love the joy and the strength. I read once that Nelson Mandela was a boxer. Um, and so, and he would like box and he would like shadow box and do all this stuff when he was in prison for such a long time. And that he, he said, you know, something like, you know, the fight that I do with my body prepares me for the fight I'm going to do in the world, right? Yeah. And so it's not, it doesn't seem, I wasn't picking up like on the violence. It was just like the embodiment of strength, the embodiment of, of owning your power. And that's what you talked about. You know, talk about owning your own media company, because that's a huge thing. That, that thing which is from working from someone else to entrepreneurship, right? Is it's such a huge step. Latinas take it um, as, and people, women of color take it at twice the rate as as non women of color. But there, I feel like there's so many people that might be listening, especially now, like in the midst of a pandemic and economic depression, are just finally like, you know what? the hell with it. I want to do something different. How did you take that step to say, I worked for CNN, I worked for NPR, and now I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to be La Hefa in charge? Because that, that's, I mean, that feels ter- empowering and also terrifying.
1: So <clears throat> one of the things that you learn in boxing, actually, is this move, right? Which is a weave and a dodge. It's a weave a dodge and and actually in our worlds it's good stuff to learn because you realize that throughout our careers we've had to dodge you know it's not like microaggressions it was frontal right as journalists in the mainstream you know my editor saying well you have a latino agenda or other editors saying well that story will never make it on the air or having to convince honestly, another white guy, that the story that I'm seeing needs to be told is important, only for him to say, nobody even knows about that. Who cares? And so um, at that point when I created Futuro Media, um, I had just gone to have an interview. I, I had just gone to have an interview with 60 Minutes. I was so excited. I was like, my God, this is it. Because, you know, 60 Minutes actually has, uh, plays an important role in the book. I was like, this is it. This is, this is going to happen. And then they said, <clears throat> we really love you, but can you wait until one of these older white guys gets sick or dies and then come back? And I just remember saying, I got in, in the subway at 59th Street up to Harlem and I cried. I cried the whole way. I was like, God, I can't I can't wait, you know, uh, and I can't go on unemployment. No le puedo decir eso a mi papá, that I'm going on unemployment. Oh, my God, no. So that was when, um, you know, other people had said to me, well, why don't you create something? I'll help you. Why don't you create something? You have a brand, to which I was like, a brand? Are you kidding? What are you talking about? Like, like I never saw myself in that way. And then <clears throat> by then, this is the beauty, and this is the clincher, by then... I had left NPR, I had left CNN. I was now at a small shop within PBS and I learned how to raise money. Mm. I learned how to ask for money, which as you know, for us is really hard. But I learned and that's how I was able to create Futuro because I knew I had an idea. I was motivated by Hollywood actresses who had created their own production companies. So I was like, well, I'm not an actress, but I'm a journalist. Maybe this is what I can do, do it on my own. And I, I don't want people to think like I just single, <clears throat> single-handedly like sat at my desk and like, oh, poof, created. No, no. I had people who were helping me you know, who helped me to write the papers to launch a company, helped me envision that because that's not my strength. My strength is not managing people. My strength is in the creative. So I had to realize like, okay, you don't do it all. Actually, people who wrote things don't do it all. They have a lot of people, you know this, Robin, you have a lot of people around you who are working with you on a goal and a vision. You know, it was really funny, Robin, because when I had to read the audio version of the book, I had to go into the studio. Right now I'm at home because we're in quarantine. We're not going into the office, but for there I had to go into the studio to record. <laughs> and um I'm reading the book. It was it was hard. It was a challenge. <laughs> but when I got towards the end to the point where I created Futuro, <laughs> it was really funny Robin because I'm reading the book and I'm like, "Go Maria." <laughs> I'm like reading my own writing. I'm like, yeah, you do it. You go create your own company. You, yes, you establish it. You, and I'm like, you're rooting for yourself. It's your own. But I really was like happy. I was happy that I was able to figure out a path. I mean, it was either that or I was going to go work for somebody else again And I just really, I was just kind of done with that. And so (laughs) it is a great moment in the book where, um, you know, you just feel like, oh my God, there's there's another light at the end of the tunnel and she's going to do it. And we've done it. And we're 10 years old. Futuro Media is 10 years old. We are expanding now. This might be one of our best years in terms of which is a terrible thing to say in a pandemic. But in terms of the company, we've really been able to kind of settle, grow. People are interested in the thick. You know, our politics podcast took off in this election year. Latino USA, uh, new distributor, increasing audience. We've been around for over 25 years and our audience is popping and growing. What is that about? Um, I launched my own unit. Within Futuro, which is called the Futuro Unidad Hinojosa, the FU, F-U-H. <laughs> um, I'm launching an investigative unit. We've got multiple projects. So a lot is happening. I actually just posted to people, you know, keep your eye on Futuro Media's website because jobs are going to start coming up because we're actually growing. So it's, um, it's, it's a great moment right now, Robin. Pero oyeme, terrifying, scared all the time all the time it was another latina nina vaca actually who is a triathlete and you know super ceo uh you know whose father was killed um in la when she was working at their travel agency um that that actually happened um and nina told me she said you know what how do you how do you do it you never stop breathing and i was like yo nina seriously (laughs) Like that. that's like, that's the advice. She's like, yeah, just never stop breathing. And I had just learned how to scuba dive. I had just gone on my first and only scuba diving trip. And that was what the teacher said. Okay, whatever you do, don't stop breathing. And you're like, yeah, but I'm a human being. Of course I'm gonna breathe in. And they're like, yes. Well, when people scuba dive, they forget to breathe. They get so anxious that they hold their breath and you could die. And so that is, we have to breathe through it. Everything is hard. It's all scary, but we know Latinas, we got this. Latinas, women of color, women in general, we are pretty unstoppable.
0: Well, yes. And you're unstoppable completely. And I love, I love Nina. She runs the fastest growing, uh, I think female business in America, not even Latina, right? Like, like crazy, <laughs> like something completely badass. But you know, when you talked about launching this company, what I heard was that you had to go out and raise money and that you just, I don't know, that like you felt that you could, and also like a delegation, because I think all those things are so important, right? It's a belief. That you can, even when you probably can't, or who knows, right? This entitlement that some people come with, and we don't, if we don't grow up with generational wealth and things like that, it's hard to see yourself in that space. But it's also this idea of delegation, right? This collaboration, which I think is very indigenous. This is the way that we we lead right in community and saying, you know what, girl. I can't do all the things, but you can help me do these things, and then I'll help you do these things. So, how can we just talk about your leadership style and what it's like to lead something? Because you know the patriarchy leads in a certain way. I was a leader. I am a leader, but I when I was running Latina, um, and it's always it's always interesting when you step into that role because you kind of sometimes mimic patriarchal things around you, and then sometimes you do you honor your intuitive gifts, your collaborative gifts, your divine. F- feminine gives, your idea that being a Latina is a superpower. So what is unique to your leadership style and how do you lead at Futuro that is really markedly different from anything that you saw at NPR, CNN, or any of the places that you uh, you really cut your teeth at?
1: So, <clears throat> I mean, one of the ways that I do is that I believe in the people around me. Um, and, and I actually realized that this happened when other women as I was a young journalist, saw me as a professional and as an equal. And I remember that was really important for me because I'd be like, like when I was at CBS News and I'd be like, but I don't know what I'm doing. And they would talk to me like, I knew exactly what I was doing, but you got to do this. And I want you to, and I'm like, wow, they really think I know what I'm doing as a professional journalist. And of course, then I did know what I was doing. So in my shop, I look at people, I'm like, oh, you can do that. And they're like, but I've never done. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you got it. And I just believe in them. I believe that they have the capacity To do this, I'm thinking about people who I hired at the very beginning. It's hard, you know, uh, you know, to put together a staff. And um, and there were many many women who I would hire, and they were like, "But I've never done this before." I'm like, "I know, neither have I, but we're going to figure it out, and we're going to figure it out together." So I think that's one of my leadership styles, which is like, "You got this." In that sense, you have to. Once I throw it to you, you got to be like, "Okay, I got this." Right? Mm -hmm. That is important. Cause I will, I will just say, okay, let's do this. And then I'm expecting you to just be like, okay, yeah. If I have any questions, we'll figure this out. So in that sense, very much seeing us as equal Um, Our company is led by now by Erica Dilday. She's an African-American woman from Harlem via Mississippi. Um, She has an MBA and a master's in journalism. She's like our unicorns. That's exactly what we needed. And we're based here in Harlem. Our company, it's not that we focus on diversity because it's like that is who we are. Like, it is an essential part of who we are, cultural competency, being super representational, being thoughtful about how we hire so that we are as representational as we can be in our small company. Um, You know, I I talk a lot back when we had our office space, which was adorable. I love it and I miss it. um, I tried to create a sense of family. La verdad, la verdad. You know, I I would do that like I'd be you know bringing food. Then my staff would complain like, "Stop feeding us! You know, we don't want junk food." So then it's like, okay, I have to bring them good food. You know, I, eh, you know, eh, park party celebrations, all of these things that you actually have to work at in creating a sense of teamwork in a company. So that's very important to me. Um, I don't I don't think that I throw my weight around. That's also something that I'm really clear about that. It's not like, well, it has to be like, mm, there are certain things where I'll be like, well, I'm not going to give up on that. Like I'm definitely going to do that story or I definitely want to do that interview or I want to, you know, uncover that, but I'm not throwing my weight around. I'm not saying it's my way or the highway. In fact, I I'm bossed around, you know, I'm, I'm the anchor of a show, but I have a managing editor. (laughs) I have an editor. So we work in collaboration. Um, And I think that is something that really just brings out the best in people in that they are made to believe that they can be their best selves in a work setting. And that we are a company that wants to see you, that is uh, sensitive if you're a Muslim, if you're trans, if you're a woman, if you're a mother, if you're nursing, we built a whole nursing station because we had new moms. Um, so I, I like to believe that we are a company that listens, um, and and now increasingly is competitive. So maybe we don't offer you the tip-top salary, but you're going to get a really cool place to work that is flexible and understands you, and you know start out starts off with five weeks vacation. Because I decided that three weeks a year, we shut the company down. Shut it down. Shut it down. And I was like, oh, I can do this because I run this place. <laughs> so that's how you can create leadership and and give to your coworkers because they're giving so much
0: to us. That, well, that's beautiful. That's it. Everyone's going to be applying. I want five weeks. And also get to work alongside a visionary like you is really a very singular experience. So, you I mean, you've had... I mean, you've you know, you won Emmys and all kinds of things, but you know, I don't know. Is there some is there a bucket list thing, like some crazy thing that you want to do that you haven't done yet? Because you've done so much. I
1: have, Robin, and um, I don't know if you know this, but one of my dreams did come true. So I, I do tell my students, I say, please, first day of class, what's your craziest, wildest dream? Say it out loud and just never, never give up on it because you never know. One of the things that happened after Donald Trump was elected, actually four years ago, um, I remember somebody saying to me, the most extraordinary art was created in the most challenging moments in history, whether it was World War II, the Nazi era, 1960s in this country. And so I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to go all out then. In that case, what's holding me back? Nothing. I'm not going to be held back. And so <laughs> I once dreamed of being an actor and I started telling everybody, everybody who I was with, I was like, you know, I think I want to act again. I think I want to do something. I think I want to do a one woman show. I think I... and that's, that was one of my bucket list things. Well, um, Chiara Alegria Hudis, who wrote the book for the play In the Heights on Broadway, and who wrote the screenplay for the movie, In the Heights, which will be released this June, coming June, she's my friend. I had told her, I was like, ah, you know, I wanna act in this and that. I'm in the movie In the Heights. Oh my God. So I have a role, Uh, I'm in a Hollywood movie. I mean, bucket list, that was on my bucket list. Uh, So it happened. If you ask me now, I would probably say um, one thing that I'm looking to do. So there's two things. One is that apart from the journalism, which is just growing and expanding, you know, a lot of people, especially men, <clears throat> when I launched Futuro, they were like, "Why did you create a nonprofit? Why didn't you make it profit?" I'm like, "Because I don't want to make money off of journalism, and money was never my thing." So there's a part of me that's like. Eh, you know what, I'd love to do something that is a commercial success. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, but yeah, I, I so I could just prove them all wrong. So there's that. Um, and I do th- believe that the work that we're doing right now, eventually I will be executive producing, producing something, making something very big. Um, in the dramatic field, so not journalism. Um, and I have all kinds of ideas, and now I kind of want to play in that. I mean, I'm, believe me, I'm launching an investigative unit. So the journalism is not going anywhere. It's just going to get more and more deep, and it's not going away. But on the other side, when I'm like, well, what else? <laughs> what else? I'm like, yeah, let's play a little bit. Now, we do know, and you know this, Robin. In terms of the movies, assuming we go back to having movies, et cetera, and movie theaters, um, one out of every four movie tickets is bought by a Latino or a Latina. We consume popular culture, Hollywood movies, television series like crazy. And we should be creating, writing, starring, making our stories and so there's a part of me that's like I'm. I'm I kind of want to play in that sphere. So that might be a little bit of a <clears throat> of a bucket list. Um, we did win a win a Peabody with Latino USA. That that was huge. I'd like to win another one. But the an award that I would love to win is the Dupont at Columbia University. Considering that yes, I haven't won one of those. And um, you know, if they give Pulitzers for books, I'll take one. But I'm I'm actually. That's not, that's not what I'm focused on right now because it's like awards. No, 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 no. More important is to leave an impact and to tell stories with heart. And so I want to keep doing that and just expand on it. Maybe be in another Hollywood film. That would be a lot of fun too.
0: Well, I would love to see you. And I think maybe once I was you could be made into a screenplay, into like a series. <laughs> I would watch that. But, you know, we'll, we'll wrap up with Ancestors because... Uh, there's so much uh, that I love and you talked about ancestry work. So I have two last questions for you. And the first one is, I know that you, you know, did an interview with, is it Henry Louis Gates? Yes. You know, I'm, yes, <laughs> I'm finding the roots. Like what was, what was the most impactful thing that you learned and that you can share about going back into ancestry?
1: Wow. That was, <clears throat> that was like a five hour interview with Skip Gates for Finding Your Roots. So I had never been interviewed for five hours. It was extraordinary. And that just happened. It happened right after I had launched the book. So it was like this very dreamy moment. And then I go on set. It was the only uh, on set interview that I've done. What can I reveal? Um, They were thrilled. They found my ancestors back 500 years. So Skip Gates was like, oh, my God, this never happens. And I guess what I have to come to terms with is I have conquistadores in my blood. I have the blood of of men who came to conquer, of men who were tied to the king of Spain.
0: Wow.
1: And Um, and so I have to process that. I'm in the, I'm in the middle of making amends. You know, I'm going to Mexico on Friday, um, my first trip since March. So I think maybe I'll do some of this work there as I'm talking with my mother and processing this. So I'm making them. And there were some very dramatic stories because men's lives are actually documented. That's the other thing that I found out. Like the women, Got married, got baptized, died, period. The men's stories are where we realize what they did, good and bad. The other big revelation was when Henry Louis Gates looked at me and he said, You're an indigenous. Your matrilineal line is indigenous. You're over, you know, about a quarter indigenous. And so that is where I have to do. And by the way, Robin, I want that information about what I have to read about the Aztec cosmology because I, I, I need to read that. <laughs> um, so that's the work that I'm doing is processing on the one hand, the violence and the conqueror side of myself with the indigenous woman rooted um, also via Cuba. Ends up that I've got some blood ties to Cuba which is fascinating to me because I always felt that. Um, It was really beautiful work. It's just that I honestly, since that interview up until now, I haven't had a moment to really sit down and pause and consider what that all meant. So I'm hoping that I do that when I'm in Mexico with my family and we're we're talking about what this all means because they gave us massive family tree, like massive poster that's
0: for real. No, but that's so beautiful because we are, I mean, as, as Latinx, you know, we're colonized people, right? And so we have the colonized and the colonizer, right? So we have these, and I, you know, I went on an ancestral journey. That was so important. And I think that if mo, more Latinx people did, they might find more resilience, more confidence, yes, more hope, and more understanding. I think with other uh, acceptance of who they are. I, that's my my idea. So I think that ancestry work is so important for all of us. But the last question, and it's a bummer. I don't want it to be the last question <laughs> because i talked to you for five hours, but I won't keep you uh, for five hours. Is as you know, as an ancestor, I you know you have children and you know, when you think about you being, you know, like a good ancestor, what do you hope that they say about you when you're on someone's altar, right? So you're on my like, like, oh, it's like <laughs> Mama Maria. Like, what do you hope that they say about you? Um,
1: that I never gave up. That I, <clears throat> that I understood the privilege that I had and that I therefore understood my responsibility that I tried to be humble, that I tried to give voice to people who felt invisible, um, that I worked on myself to be a better person, to be a better mom. Look, I did therapy this weekend with my therapist and my son, because we're still working stuff out. The week before I was doing therapy with my daughter. So I, I take this work of like being a better person Really seriously, um, so I would hope that that would be like she she kept on trying to do better, to be a better person, to give more, to wrangle her ego so it didn 't take over, um, and that she never forgot her ancestors, and so Maria hopes to never be forgotten either
0: Maria, you will never be forgotten. you have done. So much for so many, just so many, just like our community, but beyond. um, And you are a gift that keeps giving. So thank you. We love you. We're inspired by you. We're learning from you. And we support you in all the ways. So anything, whatever we can do for you. But buy Maria's book. Once I was you. That's all you need to do right now. We need to make it a bestseller. Just five thousand copies.
1: Okay, so, let's do it. Yeah.
0: Let's do it. We need to activate everyone. Okay, buy Once I Was You where, wherever all books are sold. Should I just go? to
1: Yeah, wherever their favorite place. Make sure it's a place that gets counted by the New York Times so that those books are counted. And you know what, Robin? If anybody gets the book, it's hard right now because I would have been doing something public. We would have been. There would have been a. Line of people I could have hugged them, signed. So if you can't do that, then just get in touch with me. I'm very accessible on social media and tell me, you know, where to send a signed little sticker. I'll sign it, I'll dedicate it, I'll put it in the mail. I'm doing this myself, so it'll take me a while, but I will be happy to do that for people who get the book. It's a little gift that I can give to you and the gift that you're giving to me by buying my book. So thank you.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, comadre. And that was it. Thank you all so much for listening to Get Rooted with Robin and Maria. And we will see you soon. Ciao. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure and follow us on social media and subscribe everywhere that podcaster are played. Until next time, my friends, stay rooted.